Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Refugees spend an average of 17 years in refugee situations, which is a really appalling statistic. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, it is indeed my pleasure to welcome a woman I've admired for a very long time. She is a tireless community campaigner for not just refugees, but women in particular. Naomi Steer, welcome to Short Black. It's great to finally get a chance to have a chat and explore everything about your world. Thank you so much, Sandra, and it's lovely to be able to talk to you too. Now, I think one aspect of your life that I find quite remarkable is you're a Western Suburbs girl from Parramatta here in New South Wales, but you are the founding National Director of Australia for UNHCR. How did that come about and what made you decide that that was so necessary? I am a proud uh, Westie from Sydney's western suburbs and look, probably, you know, if I sort of trace my journey to where I am now, it really started in Parramatta when I was a young uh, primary school student with my sister at Parramatta Public Central. And for any of those of us old enough, if you remember Parramatta in the 60s, it really was one of the first places where there was a big influx of uh, migration from Europe and all over the world, I have to say, uh, following uh, the Second World War and then uh, Australia opening up its migration program. And I remember as a kid, I was just always fascinated by all these new arrivals in our classroom, you know, kids literally just off the boat from Greece sort of sitting there, you know, often very shy, uh, nervous, no English. And then, you know, as, as kids are in the sort of next couple of weeks there, they would be playing happily with everybody in the, in the playground. But I was always sort of fascinated about where these kids came from and what their countries were like. And that sort of really led me on a path throughout all my career, I guess, really sort of reaching out uh, across other cultures. And I'm really privileged in my current role that, that that's sort of very much what I do, but at the same time able to support refugees. But still, it's a long way from, you know, a start in the western suburbs of Sydney to being the Australian face and, and such a passionate advocate for refugees in Australia. It all started after school with a, a law degree at the University of New South Wales and then a career path as a foreign diplomat. Your first posting was in New York. What an extraordinary first post. And it was, Sandra. And when I, when I think about it, like lots of young people, I was 25 and I was actually supposed to be getting married and I got this posting and I was thinking, well, I can't go to New York. I'm supposed to be getting married. And I spoke to my mother and probably like lots of women, my mother has been a real driving force in, in my life. Very smart woman, but Again, you know, women of her era, 
growing up in the 40s and 50s really didn't have the same education and career opportunities that, that many of us have now. But she was really determined that her daughters, including me, have those opportunities. So when I was saying, oh, I don't think I can go to New York, I'm supposed to be ma- getting married, <laughs> she said, look, Peter, who, we, who I did eventually marry, my husband, he can wait, New York can't, you know, <laughs> and off you go. And, and look, she was right <laughs> on both counts. But I worked there on what's called the third committee, which feeds into the General Assembly. And the third committee is the committee at the UN that deals with issues around human rights, uh, gender uh, and refugees. And that was really my first professional introduction to sort of these really important, I guess, areas that um, I've really worked on since then. Could you believe your luck in landing your first gig at the UN in New York? Well, look, now, um, many, many years later, I think, wow, wasn't I lucky then, you know? Oh, I'm sure you deserved it, but still, you could have been posted <laughs> to Bangladesh or somewhere, and that's not to say it wouldn't have been a worthy post, but as a 25-year-old landing in New York yeah. with your career ahead of you. I must say, before I went there, I was working in the Antarctic Division, and my father was really worried that that was going to be my first posting. So uh, he was really happy when it was New York. No, it was, it was fantastic. It was New York in the late 80s, somewhat different place, I think, than it is now. But um, really to have that opportunity as a relatively young person to work and, and live in New York was fantastic. Let's talk about Australia's role in UNHCR. I mean, you're the founder and you steer it, but you're out there door knocking constantly, trying to encourage people to be philanthropic and think about others. How has the pandemic affected that? I think uh, for many people working in the not-for-profit area, as indeed, you know, many sectors of the Australian economy, it's been a really tough time. But when the pandemic uh, started really last year, I was actually up on the border of Eritrea and Ethiopia uh, on mission, looking at projects uh, where we support hundreds and hundreds and indeed thousands of young people who uh, had escaped across the border from Eritrea in military service into relative safety then of Ethiopia. I was trying to get back to Australia as I'd heard that the sort of borders were closing and our High Commissioner Filippo Grandi at the time spoke about the need of UNHCR staff to stay and deliver. And that's pretty much what they've done across the world all during the period of this pandemic. But I was really proud when I came back to Australia, I would say our donors also stayed and delivered with us. We're really fortunate. When I speak to donors, I feel I work in such a positive space, uh, the philanthropy space. You really do see the best of people. And of course, we in Australia been through bushfires, you know, we, we were suffering ourselves from the COVID pandemic. And we went to our donors and said, look, if you can't support refugees because of your own personal circumstances, we understand that. And look, very few people actually stopped supporting us during that period and they continue to support us now. So uh, we've been very fortunate as an organisation. You say people are still continuing to give outside their own space to refugees and humanitarian aid work around the world. Surely your biggest challenge is to keep them engaged. Of course, I've been fortunate because I have travelled to to many refugee situations. I meet people that's incredibly motivating to me to to hear the stories. 
But part of my role as Head of Australia for UNHCR is to come back and, and share those stories also with people to bring alive the situation of refugees. And today there's over 80 million um, displaced people in the world. And when you talk about those kind of figures, I think people's eyes often glaze over. But when you talk about an amazing woman that you've met in, in Uganda, who's bringing up her four children, who's um, working on the streets to try and have some income to send her kids to school. People really do, uh, I think, engage and connect. And I think one of the really, I guess, big changes in the time that I've worked with Australia for UNHCR, which is now over two decades, is technology and the difference that has made. And I now get messages from refugees, uh, of course, from people that I've visited in camps in Uganda or, or Kenya. And uh, people have smartphones, mobile phones. They follow up with me. We can use uh, Skype and other forms of engagement. And most recently, uh, we launched a new app called Connecting Worlds app, where we were connecting women in Australia with refugee women in Jordan. And for everybody who was able to participate in that, that was a really extraordinary experience, having real-time conversations with a refugee woman that you were supporting in, in Amman and her having the opportunity to talk to a woman in Australia, which, you know, five, ten years ago just wouldn't have been possible. So I, I think apart from my own work, I think we're always looking at ways that people can connect more directly. And it has always been my experience that when you're able to do that, that really changes people's perceptions of who refugees are and some of the stereotypes that we have about them. So the beauty of storytelling is really the connector. I think that's a really fantastic way of describing the work that we do. I think when people talk about private sector fundraising or charity Lots of us have sort of different ideas about that, but it really is about communicating and it really is about storytelling, which is something that I also love about my work. When you look back over your career, what have been some of the most confronting examples and situations you found yourself in? You know, I can only presume you get overwhelmed with the sense of I can't really make a difference here. Have you struggled with that? I do, and I think people who work in this area can, and you can feel quite overwhelmed. One of my very first trips for um, UNHCR was to Afghanistan about six months after the uh, Taliban had been uh, forced out by the US-led forces. And so it was a sort of very new times there. And uh, a little window of optimism, I have to say, looking back, and many millions of uh, Afghan refugees went back to Afghanistan in that time, hoping that their country would be uh, safe and be able to provide for them. But I was taken in Kabul to a uh, place they called the Old Shoe Factory, which had been one of Afghanistan's biggest shoe production factories, and now it was just a bombed-out uh, shell. And about 600 people lived in this really devastated building and in very poor conditions. But even amongst the poorest of poor, who these people were, there was one woman where they kept saying to me, you must go and talk to uh, Miriam, go and talk to Miriam. And so I found her and she was a woman with about uh, four young children uh, around her. She had just been to the market to sell her only pair of shoes, leather shoes. 
to get um, money to pay for food to feed her children for that day. And um, I took her story down and I was going to share it uh, when I came back. But she's always stayed on my mind because UNHCR has a general principle that if you can't provide assistance to everybody, you don't provide it just to one person. So I was very mindful of that. But it's the one instance where it's really stayed with me that that was a moment I should have been generous and (laughs) given something to her. That was, I have to say, when, you know, the many other sort of people around there, even amongst them, she was the, the one that they thought was most deserving. That being said, you know, I was invited by another family to sit on their carpet and again, no walls but a carpet, green tea in the the kettle boiling away and they offered me a cup of green tea and, you know, in so many places that I've been, the generosity and hospitality of people who have nothing but they will give you that as just part of their code of humanity. And I took the tea and drank it. And then my translator said to me after, oh, have you seen where they get the water? <laughs> and so then I went and went downstairs and here was this sort of algae-filled well. Well, of course, that's where my green tea water had come from, I'm afraid. And um, I have to say, Sandra, sadly, I suffered the consequences uh, some time later. <laughs> But, you know, those instances where the people who have nothing but give you everything they have. Another experience for me was uh, I went into Mogadishu some years ago and uh, my colleagues in uh, Mogadishu had heard that the School for Blind in Australia had closed down and they had identified a small school for blind children in Mogadishu that had no support. So they'd asked me, could I get any leftover equipment from the School for Blind in Australia? Well, I did contact them and they didn't have any, but I ended up buying a whole lot of old Perkins Brown machines off eBay, which I'd been told would be really useful. So I had my assistant watching eBay for these bargain old uh, typewriter machines. Anyway, I went into Nairobi with my bags full of these old braille machines, which weigh about two to three kilos each. I was pretending that my luggage was very light. And um, my colleague in Nairobi said, look, we've got a plane going into Mogadishu tomorrow. Why don't you go in and give these directly to the school yourself? Well, I didn't think anything about it. I said, okay. And then I was on the plane and the head of UNHCR for Somalia was there and said, oh, Naomi, you know, we're very pleased that you have made it. We were unsure whether you should come because we've had a credible threat against the UN. But people have said you're experienced and you will be fine. I was sitting there, Sandra, thinking, no, I don't think I am. Anyway, I, we landed and it was full on security. You know, I had the helmet on, the uh, bulletproof jacket. I was in an armoured vehicle. I uh, was taken to the, the school where there were these beautiful children who had all been prepared uh, for my arrival with my Perkin Brown machines. And the headmaster was this heroic man, the only non-blind person in the school who had led 25 students and teachers out from Al-Shabaab-controlled areas in the the south of Somalia into Mogadishu. And here I presented my brow machines and they had poems and songs and stories. 
And then my, the head of security said to me, oh, look, you know, it's been such a lovely morning. He was a Somali. Normally we can only, we only spend 20 minutes at each spot because of of security, but I've given you 30. And I must say, I was like, no, 20 will be fine. (laughs) I'm no hero. But I have to say, when I think of sort of the work of my colleagues and people like the headmaster, what they do under really sort of difficult circumstances, that's always been, I guess, such an inspiration for me in my own work. I'm sure there are so many other examples where you've looked back in hindsight and thought, mm, that was probably more risky than I'd anticipated. <laughs> Do you often think about those times? Oh, look, one, when I travel with UNHCR, and it is the UN, and I have to say I always feel confident with the security arrangements around there. But, you know, as you say, I'm a human rights lawyer. I work in an office in Sydney. I have no pretensions to being a frontline worker per se. So I am conscious of sometimes, you know, where UNHCR works is not where most of us would normally choose to work. And I guess because I've been travelling for so long and working with UNHCR, I can take some of those situations for granted. Whereas I think others coming along sometimes think, no, I really wouldn't want to fly into Mogadishu or be up on the Eritrean border or going to Afghanistan. I think, Sandra, though, one of the most challenging things for me was actually nothing to do with going into a frontline situation. It was actually uh, 10 years ago when I was marking my own 10-year anniversary and 10 years of Australia for UNHCR operating. I'd just come out of a refugee camp on the uh, Somali border, Dadaab refugee camp, which is one of the biggest refugee camps in the world. And I met these amazing women running a a cooperative. They were making beautiful hand-printed, hand-dyed cloth and selling it, and they were running independently literacy classes for women. Many of these women themselves had been in this refugee camp by the time I got there for over 20 years. And I actually, on the one hand, although they were really inspiring, for me it was actually quite depressing. As a woman, I have always like pushed for other women to have opportunities, to have education, you know, to be able to sort of follow their dreams. And really the situation for many refugee women and girls is that simply not going to be possible. Refugees spend an average of 17 years in refugee situations, which is a really appalling statistic. So these women who, to me, were so bright and smart and anywhere else in the world would have just sort of been charging forward, were actually, to me, really constrained in the situation. And I came away feeling quite depressed. And it's sort of one of the few times that I have really felt this is a really difficult area and what difference am I making? And as I was flying out of Kenya, I saw the tip of Mount Kenya just peeking out of the clouds. And so I formed in my mind, look, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to climb Mount Kenya and raise awareness and funds for these refugee women. Anyway, that was a great idea. But uh, as a 50-year-old woman, which I was then, not having done any exercise for years, and (laughs) Mount Kenya is the second highest mountain in uh, Africa at 5,100 metres. So, look, it's, it's no mean just sort of walk in the park. 
And I came back and I'd sort of announced this and it sort of got a bit of enthusiasm and so people just started funding me on GoFundMe and suddenly I thought, well, I'm going to have to do this. So I joined a trek training um, group called Wild Women on Top, which I really loved, made up of other women, I guess, around my age who'd all decided to go trekking. I trained with them for about three months and then I embarked on this climb up Mount Kenya. I was very lucky a friend, a much younger friend, decided to come with me. It would have been quite a lonely trek up the mountain, I have to say, without her. And on the last day when we were getting up to the summit, and I'd found it really hard despite my sort of efforts at getting fit, it is quite high. You know, the altitude was was difficult, but on the on the actual day that we were getting up very early to go to the summit, I just had this enormous amount of uh, energy and I made it. Why I raise this, not just sort of climbing the mountain, but I think for all of us, we have sort of the areas that we feel strong or competent in. And Physical activity has never been my strong point, uh, I have to say. I, I am an old netballer. I have done things, but, you know, I'm much, I feel very comfortable in, in the role that I've done in leading and whatever. But what I sort of learned through this was really, I guess, having to step out of my comfort zone. And that gave me a lot of confidence in other areas of my life. For all sorts of reasons, that was a, a bit of a life-changing experience for me. Yeah, it sounds like it was really empowering for you. And I guess you've answered the next question for me, which is how do you stay positive when you're surrounded by such despair all the time? I think you see, as I was saying, when you work in the philanthropic space, I certainly see the best of humanity. You also see the consequences of the worst of humanity. But I think I have worked my whole life, I guess, in areas supporting women. Uh, That was very much the areas that I pursued when I was in foreign affairs. I worked in the trade union movement for a number of years, working around issues of uh, equal pay, which are very close to my heart. And I know, of course, many women. And then working uh, with refugees, where 80% of all refugees are women and children. Not only is the sort of cause very inspiring, but of course the the people. We ran a series during the COVID pandemic called Living with Uncertainty, and it was about the lessons you could learn from refugees that we could take for all of us uh, in these uncertain times. And they were things about just taking every day, day by day, the resilience you need to keep going, the adaptability, the flexibility. And I think I've always said at Australia for UNHCR, you know, we work with amazing people as refugees and they are capable and they are resourceful and they are resilient, but it's our job to give them the sort of resources for them to be able to fulfil their uh, potential, which I think every person has that right. And I don't think 80 million people should be denied that right. Where does Australia sit in the philanthropy stakes? How would you describe us? Uh, I I think Australians, if you can show them, I think, practical outcomes for the support they give, my experience is that they will respond. I've often had discussions on planes with, with people, you know, who ask me what I do, and particularly as the refugee debate has sort of gone up and down and sometimes been very divisive in Australia. 
And I will have people saying, well, shouldn't we do stuff in our own backyard first? And of course, my view on that is, yes, we should support people in our own communities, but that doesn't mean if we have the opportunity, we shouldn't also be supporting people in the global community. And I think the pandemic has really brought that home to all of us. If we didn't understand our connectivity before, we certainly do now. So I I think Australians are generous people, but I think it's really important to show people the impact of the support that they give. And as we've talked about, telling the stories, sharing the experiences are also really important that people can kind of just see through numbers and, and statistics and really feel for the people that they are helping. I know in discussions previously with you and when I've been to your functions, etc., the importance of something like microfinance is just impossible to exaggerate. That is a game changer for a lot of refugees in helping them and empowering them to chase their own dreams and create their own success stories. Microfinance is still a big part of what you do? Look, it is, and I think it will become even a bigger part. For UNHCR, for I guess it's sometimes characterised as an emergency response organisation, you know, when you have half a million people crossing over a border in a matter of days, it's food, water, shelter that are the principal needs, life-saving support. But, you know, increasingly refugee situations are protracted. You know, as a refugee, you are likely to spend 17 years at least outside your country as a refugee. So the kind of support that that we give has also sort of changed and adapted too in terms of longer-term support. And key support, you know, when I speak to refugees, number one concern is to be safe. Number two is for their children to be able to get education. And number three is for them to be able to have a livelihood and earn an income and support their families. And of course, micro enterprises are really important. We uh, supported uh, the first uh, refugee bank in a refugee camp called uh, Nakavali Refugee Camp. That came about uh, because we had built a computer centre very close to the border between uh, Uganda and Democratic Republic of Congo. It was quite a difficult project to undertake and all the kind of issues that you hear about with projects in remote areas sort of happened on this. You know, we had to have, it had to be solar panelled according to the UN's um, green policy. When we got these solar panels made, uh, the roof collapsed on the buildings and we had to start again. I visited there sometime later and everyone came to me saying, look, the power's not working, the solar panels aren't working. And uh, I just had, and this is, how I think, how the world is connected, Sandra, I just had um, a funny incident with my neighbour in Sydney. My husband loves growing trees and she just holds solar panels installed and one of his big jacaranda trees was overshadowing it and um, he wouldn't cut it. And she ended up getting the technician, solar power technician, to come out and sort of talk to me as the reasonable one saying any shade over solar panels actually constricts power generation. So here I am sort of some months later at this refugee computer centre and um, 
I say, is there a tree? Is that is that the problem? You know, with the power generation, and they say, yes, cut the tree. <laughs> so they did cut the tree and there's never been any problem ever since. So now I've sort of got the reputation as being a really fantastic technician. <laughs> I did thank my neighbour in Sydney. I, I'm not sure she knew what I was talking about, but I, I did say she had actually saved a village in, in that case. Um, but anyway, the centre has gone on and through that, People can find work, they can bid for work on the internet, which they do, but also through it they can do further training and education. And one of the new arrivals had applied to do some remote education in the area of finance. He turned out to be a former bank manager from Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the chair of the computer centre, who's also a refugee from Kenya, had this dream about setting up a microcredit bank in the refugee camp. So he immediately got together with his former bank manager with some small seed funding from UNHCR. They did set up the microcredit bank, totally run by refugees. It's got a 99% success rate in loan repayment. And they fund all sorts of things. You know, there's women there who will get small loans to set up a um, dressmaking boutique. When I was there, there were two nurses, married couple from Democratic Republic of Congo who were getting a small loan to set up a health clinic. So a lot of sort of small businesses and very vibrant businesses were able to come into being because of the availability of microcredit. We fund a group of women in Kampala in Uganda and I've seen firsthand how that project has literally changed their lives. They make various uh, handicrafts and other items. And we purchase in very large bulk, actually, for our donors back in Australia. So we probably order about 25,000 uh, key rings a year, for example. And this group, which started with six women and is now made up of 36 women, supports a broader group of uh, children in the community and their own families of about 500 people. And I've seen one of the, the women who I met very early on who was part of this group was literally sleeping in the street at that time with her children through the uh, income that we're able to provide through our orders to their craft group. She was able to rent some very modest but much safer accommodation than sleeping in the street. She saved her, her money. She then bought a small grinding mill. She then ended up employing two other refugee women in her grinding mill, providing flour to the local uh, community, both Ugandan and refugee population. I was delighted when I last saw her and she was about to purchase some land, a small pot of land. Wow. And as she said to me, with this huge smile, now I'm going to be a landlady. <laughs> and all the other refugee women just like burst out laughing. So, you know, the journey from her, from sleeping in the street to now being a, a landlady was an extraordinary one but enabled by sort of a relatively small amount of investment from us as Australia for UNHCR. And we're really trying to uh, scale that, I guess, uh, scale it up, but also extend it to other places. Their resourcefulness is just exceptional, and, and surely that is what keeps you motivated. That's profoundly empowering at a very human and uh, basic level. 
those stories are the ones that really strike a chord, aren't they? And I think as women, what I've really loved is, I guess, just what we have in common, which is far more than we don't. We had, um, just before the pandemic impacted, we brought a group of women from Australia to Uganda to work with this particular group that I was just talking about. It was under the umbrella of a leadership program. And I was very concerned that it would be, be not just, you know, women from Australia going to talk about leadership and they were all women leaders from the corporate sector, but also that we from Australia were very open to learning from these women who are leaders in their community, you know, and against all odds. And displaying courage at every turn. Absolutely. I didn't know how it would work out. It was a bit of an experiment, you know, for both groups. But I think we both got so much out of it. And I think exactly as you're saying, when you you see what sort of refugee women bring to their daily lives as examples for us, and not just about that, they're super, you know, really smart, really strategic. And so it was a really fantastic exchange. And we all came back to Australia really inspired and wanting to really uh, develop more of those programs where women to women can interact. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you think at the moment many people that are a bit disillusioned with the UN per se, taking politics out of the equation, they see the UN as arguably a lost body. Does that confuse in the public's mind what you do? Do you have to sort of overcome that political divide in encouraging people to commit to supporting the work that you do? Australia is an interesting place because unlike Europe or, or indeed many of the countries that I work in across Africa or, or other places, The UN has a relatively small footprint here, so I don't think there's a great understanding about it. And also, as you'd be aware, the UN is a very broad family. You know, there are many strands to it. So when we talk about the UN, often I don't think we really understand the difference between the Security Council, which is an intergovernmental organisation, and organisations like UNICEF or the UN Refugee Agency which are very much about operational agencies on the ground, supporting people and doing sort of very practical and and life-changing work. And I think when I talk about that, there is a a lot more um, support. We have, I should say, I head up the uh, private sector national partner of the UN Refugee Agency, but we have a, a smaller diplomatic office, which is based in Canberra, and um, works in the South Pacific region and Papua New Guinea and Australia 
one of its key roles is actually liaising with the Australian government around really important issues of resettlement uh, and asylum and uh, working with us, I guess, to really change perceptions about not only refugees, but also, as you say, about the, the work of the UN, particularly through organisations like the UN Refugee Agency. I wonder if many Australians really understand the profound nature of the relationship between Australia and the UN. I mean, we're a founding member back in the 50s. And look, that's so right. You know, I think it was Evert who was one of the really strong uh, protagonists supporting the establishment of the, the UN. It was. We have a sort of proud history in many aspects as part of peacekeeping forces. And in fact, when we came in, into being Australia for UNHCR, and one of the reasons the decision was taken in 2000 to set up Australia for UNHCR, and I was engaged to do that, was because there was this very positive feeling, I think, about the UN and Australia's role globally in making a positive difference. If you remember 1999, John Howard, the then Prime Minister, I think, had welcomed uh, Bosnian refugees into safe havens into regional Australia. And then Australia led the peacekeeping force in East Timor. Mm -hmm. And I think for many Australians, seeing those images on TV seeing this crisis in East Timor and, and innocent civilians are being attacked by militia and then the Australian Peacekeeping Force going in and really securing a stability and that, and that nation. We were really proud of that and we saw right on our doorstep both the, the role we could have as a country in uh, the UN and, and with peacekeeping forces. So that was very much the environment when we were established in 2000. And of course, uh, many things have changed, including the political landscape in that time. When I go back to that and I talk about that, Australians really understand, you know, I think the value we can bring to global peace, global security, and we really want to have a voice and role in that. When you talk about the issues that confront us, and globally there are many, at the moment climate change and the humanitarian crisis worldwide seem to be arguably the most topical. Are you seeing that demonstrated in the demographic of younger Australians being interested in the work that you do? Because they seem increasingly passionate about those two key areas. And I think the connection between climate change and global displacement and the humanitarian needs of those people who are displaced are really clear. I think when you see sort of displacement across many parts of Africa now, the combination of drought and food and water security creates conflict, which creates displacement. And I think the Secretary General of uh, the UN, Mr Antonio Guterres, who was the former head of UNHCR some years ago, has really driven this connection and trying to get action on climate change. And again, as you say, when I speak to young people in the community who are always, to me, really inspiring and idealistic around these things, but actually want some positive action on it also, I'm really encouraged. I've often thought that the debate around whether it be migration or refugees or asylum seekers and I could be wrong, but is to some extent a generational issue. 
because when I speak to young people, they're just so much more connected to the world in so many ways, whether that be through travel, whether that be through family, whether that be through technology. So on one hand, a sort of greater open-mindedness to change, but on the other, a passionate interest in supporting that change. I guess the trick then is how do you harness that passion and interest into genuine commitment for the work that you do? How do you make them make that leap to believe that your organisation delivers genuine outcomes? I mean, a lot of people get, I guess, empathy fatigue, not just with what's going on in Australia, but globally. How do you fight that empathy fatigue? I don't know what happens between us when we're at school and then we become adults, because again, when I speak to children and students at school and university students, they're certainly not apathetic at all about what's happening in the world. I'm always really encouraged about that. I think for us as a country, it's really important that we stand up and that women stand up and that young people stand up and really have a voice much more than sometimes we're we're able to, both in the political space and also civil society. And for me, that's what's going to change things when we get people in positions of power and influence that can really change things in a positive way, both in Australia and also globally. And look, I am an optimist by nature, but when I do look at young people, I am really encouraged that that change is happening. When I see my children's friends, I have a 24-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old son, and they've grown up in the inner west of Sydney, very multicultural area on the, you know, Canterbury-Bankstown area. For them, that's just life, having friends from all different backgrounds. You know, it's not something that's unusual. Their view of the world is, is different to some extent from what I was brought up with. Are you seeing a greater take-up then from younger Australians and a genuine interest in what you're doing? Absolutely, in many ways, and not just UNHCR. Look, again, when I I started working with UNHCR, there weren't many Australians working within UNHCR at all, and it was, I think, much more a sort of European-focused organisation. That has changed uh, dramatically with many more opportunities uh, of young people interning, working for UNHCR and other organisations. So there's much more engagement there, but there's also like real interest in engaging with Australia for UNHCR. We have a lot of activities uh, which are youth-supported and and youth-led, and we could have many more given the interest that's out there. Well, that's really reassuring to hear that, you know, so many young Australians are genuinely passionate about making a change. What's the simple thing any one of us can do to contribute and be confident that our small contribution actually is making a difference? Well, I I wouldn't be a good fundraiser, Sandra, if I didn't say you can donate to Australia for UNHCR and be confident that um, your funds will be very well used to support refugees both in the short term and life-saving support, but in the long term. But I also think we have sort of a lot of opportunity in our local communities. We have many refugees and new arrivals in Australia. One of the challenges for them is often 
engaging in the broader Australian community. They don't have those networks. They don't have those mentors. And so we're really working actively now with our donors and other organisations in the private sector to really step up and support refugees also in our our local community through employment, uh, through mentoring, through friendship circles. So anybody who is interested in that, you know, we would really welcome their uh, interest and support at Australia for UNHCR. If you want to follow up any of those suggestions or uh, have inquiries, uh, and particularly uh, around some of our initiatives for women, you can go to our website, www.unrefugees.org.au and uh, put an inquiry and it will come to me and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So you've got a good broad reach across Australia. You know, if I'm sitting in Kalgoorlie or Blacktown, but possibly Townsville, and I want to do something in a small way, that's possible. Yeah, that, look, that's possible. And again, I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is thinking outside the box about how we communicate across Australia. At one point, we might have just had events in Sydney or when I visit other states. Now we have uh, regular uh, online events for supporters and anybody who's interested. We've got a really wonderful program called the Frontline Club, where we uh, interview people from across the world working on frontline situations. And, you know, we all have the opportunity to ask questions and find out more and try and understand around displacement or or some of the sort of really dire situations like in uh, Yemen or um, Syria or wherever. So there's plenty of opportunities for people right across Australia to engage directly with our organisation and through us uh, with refugees and the frontline workers who support them. Not that long ago, you launched a leading women fund, Australia for UNHCR calling on Australian women to step up and become a part of their founding 50. This is a program that was very close to my heart. The Leading Women Fund is really about encouraging women in Australia to connect directly to women and girls in other countries. Right now, we're working with refugee women in Jordan in a very specific program that the Leading Women Fund and the Founding 50 support. I think a lot of people sometimes think of relief and aid as sort of sacks of flour or big uh, cartons of oil and, you know, all those uh, stereotypical images of aid. But increasingly, aid now is delivered in different ways. One of the most important initiatives is through cash assistance, where uh, people and, and through UNHCR, it's the most vulnerable are given a cash allowance on a monthly basis that's uh, deposited into bank accounts that are set up where that's possible. And that means that refugees can determine what their priorities are in in terms of their needs. So through the Leading Women's Fund, uh, we support a cash assistance program for refugee women in Jordan. They get about $250 a month. They use that to pay rent, school fees. Uh, It might fund a small micro credit business, but really just to support their families. And we have many, many uh, examples where, again, that has really sort of been life-saving and life-changing for those women. 
also through that program as a founding member, you have the opportunity to connect to a refugee woman in Jordan through uh, the Interconnecting World app and have uh, conversations and exchanges. The women who've been part of that program on both sides have just, I think, found it really amazing, Uh, you know, from sharing recipes and stories about their children to more in-depth discussions. For women in Australia, it was really getting into an insight directly into the lives of refugee women in Jordan and being able to support them for refugee women in um, Jordan. The feedback was it was just so lovely where they live in very constrained circumstances and, of course, during the global pandemic, to have connections with women outside Jordan, outside their lives. And for them, it sort of literally, I guess, lifted a a lid on a whole another world and a, a, a way of thinking. And I think just even that, giving people sort of hope and inspiration, they loved. In your last report, you said the number of people forcibly displaced around the world has doubled in the past 10 years. I'm wondering how supportive has Australia's private sector been when you go to them with these sorts of numbers? I think in terms of the numbers and the private sector, individual Australians are generous and for Australia, for you and HCR, are the key supporters in funding our humanitarian operations overseas. We would really like to see the private sector, and that means uh, business in many cases, step up more than we have seen. There are many sort of good examples of companies that are actively supporting refugees and and organisations. We were working with a uh, Teachers Health, which is a health insurance company uh, supporting teachers in the education sector. They have supported us over three years, funding very generously maternal health programs in the Democratic Republic of Congo. For them as an organisation, not only are they taking their role as a sort of global citizen very seriously, but also, you know, they say it's what their employees also expect of them. So I think we're going to see a change in the private sector because I think employees are sort of driving some of these changes and wanting their organisations not just to talk the talk about being forces for good, but also walking the walk on that. Naomi, surely for a lot of younger women who are keen to get involved, they need to see those deliberate direct outcomes, don't they? Yes, and I think we're really at a critical point for women and girls across the world, in my mind. We've seen a real turning point around women really wanting to step up and young women in particular. There's an intergenerational change that I really sense and I'm really excited by. And I see such a huge opportunity for women to really help other women with that same energy. And I think through Australia for You and HCR, what what I'm really hoping is that this new emerging generation of women are really going to step up and work with organisations like Australia for You and HCR, not just only to help themselves and their peers in Australia in their careers, but to really reach and uplift women globally. And that would be a wonderful outcome. I often think through the charity world, the gift of giving is so profoundly rewarding. Actually, the gift of giving is just doing. 
I love that uh, philosophy, Sandra, and I, I really believe the gift of giving goes to the best of humanity. Our opportunity to do something selflessly without any idea that we're going to personally gain. I see through our donors every day that happening, people giving to people thousands of miles away who they are likely never to meet or never know, but they want to do something that's positive in another person's life. And that's really the wonderful essence, I think, of personal philanthropy. I love that. At the end of the day, Naomi, the challenges are pretty profound. I understand how you stay inspired and in some respects there's got to be a lot of comfort in being able to support so many people who are doing it so tough. You're a remarkable Australian woman who's led with passion and fortitude and your leadership's exemplary. But what keeps you up at night? How's the lockdown affected you and UNHCR? <laughs> it's a big question and it's affected uh, both me personally and my family and, of course, Australia for you in, in, in different ways. Coming to the question of, of what keeps me going, um, I had to speak to young women leaders some years ago who were interested in entering politics. There are many ways that, that you do that, and I think it's really important women have a voice in leadership and key decision-making uh, forums. But I actually spoke about the importance of persistence which probably sounded a bit uninspiring and boring at the time, but I genuinely believe that she who persists wins. You embody that completely. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's very much for Australia, for you and HCR, you know. We absolutely, everybody here believes in, in what we do and are committed to it. And, of course, there are the days that don't go well and we've had many challenges as an organisation but we have persisted and continue to do so. And I think that's what also brings about a change. You just don't give up. If anything, I guess that's to some extent my personal motto. The other sort of personal motto would be if you've got the opportunity, then act. And I was very much brought up by my family, by my parents to do that. I've tried to bring my own children up with that same philosophy. And I think if we all shared that, then, you know, we actually do have hope that we're going to leave our children a much better world than we might expect otherwise. Naomi Steer, you are an inspiration. I applaud everything you do and I'm so grateful that you're at the forefront of the humanitarian causes in Australia and helping us do our little bit to contribute to changing the lives of so many refugees around the world. You're a superstar, Naomi. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here at Short Black. And I've loved it, Sandra. Thank you so much for letting me be part of it. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.